Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today's interview is part one of two interviews with Thomas Immel, an assistant research physicist at the Space Sciences Laboratory at UC Berkeley. In April 2013, NASA selected the Ionospheric Connection Explorer, or ICON, to be the next Heliophysics Explorer satellite mission. The ICON mission is to be led by the Space Sciences Laboratory at UC Berkeley. Thomas Immel is the principal investigator of the ICON mission. ICON will provide NASA's Heliophysics Division with a powerful new capability to determine the conditions in space modified by weather on Earth, and to understand the way space weather events grow to envelop regions of our planet with dense ionospheric plasma. In today's interview, Dr. Immel talks about heliophysics, the Space Sciences Lab, and small CubeSats, which are small satellites being built at universities. Here's that interview. Thomas Immel, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you, Brad. Would you give us a short description of heliophysics? Sure. Heliophysics is sort of a new term, and it's used at NASA to describe in shorthand the disciplines of solar and space physics together. It's a little controversial because it means solar physics, obviously. Space physicists and people who study the upper atmosphere have sort of felt the shift with changing it to solar physics. A lot of focus went to solar physics. I think ICON, is, ICON our mission that we're talking about today, is, shows uh, another view of heliophysics or another focus. Can you describe, starting at the Earth's surface, the concentric layers of the atmosphere and out to the ionosphere and beyond? Sure. And how do you define a layer of the atmosphere is sort of where you start. How, what's the answer? The answer is we define layers of the atmosphere by their temperature profile or how the temperature changes with altitude. It's as simple as that. And so there are specific layers that on average have a temperature profile one direction or the other. That means as you go up in altitude, does the temperature drop or increase? As you leave the surface of the planet and go up, you're in the troposphere. And as you go higher in altitude, the temperature drops. And that has to do with just basic atmospheric physics and also the fact that the surface of the planet is what absorbs most of the solar radiation. So it's hot, and as you move away from that in an atmosphere that gets thinner with altitude, the temperature drops. So you go all the way up to the top of the troposphere, and you end up at the tropopause. So there's spheres and pauses. And once you cross the tropopause, you're in the stratosphere. You're in the next sphere, and there you know you've crossed it because the temperatures start to increase with altitude. And they increase because of the fact that solar radiation is being actively absorbed in that region of space that's not happening in the troposphere. The troposphere is transparent to visible light, but the stratosphere is starting to absorb solar radiation that is harmful to life, UV. 
And so the heating that occurs, the ozone that's in the stratosphere, absorbs that radiation and basically is the cause of that place being much warmer. So when you're in the stratosphere, though, you're already above about 90% of the atmosphere. It's all in the troposphere, the stuff we breathe. So the stratosphere warms up all the way to the top. You hit the stratopause, and then things turn around again. The chemistry that supports ozone does not work in the mesosphere, and so you end up starting to drop in temperature again. So just like in the troposphere, the base of the mesosphere is the warm stratopause, and it gets cold from that point. And the coldest place in the vicinity of Earth is the top of the mesopause, where those temperatures have been dropping all the way up to the boundary of space, up to about 95 kilometers. At that point, you've reached just about the boundary of space, and the temperatures turn around again and, and warm all the way up into your in space. And the, the atmosphere that's left up there is called the thermosphere because it's very hot. And it's hot, again, because it's absorbing a different region of solar radiation, extreme on far ultraviolet. So, again, protecting life on the Earth is part of our atmosphere does that in a number of ways. So the thermosphere, in that case, is also where you find the ionosphere. The thermosphere is hot because the solar radiation is very energetic at that altitude, so energetic that it ionizes the gas. And that's where you find the ionosphere. You find a layer of plasma density, so ions and electrons living together in the same place as plasma. And that plasma becomes very dense, about 200 to 300 kilometers above the Earth. That's the densest plasma between here and the sun. It's why you can hear at night Radio Tehran from your ham radio setup, if people still do that anymore, it's because you're bouncing radio waves off of that. And it's why you can hear you know, AM stations over a long distance, too, in the daytime. But it's at night where that layer is all by itself hanging around, and you can bounce radio signals off of it. So then you keep going into space, and the plasma densities actually drop, but you are protected still. You don't enter into interplanetary space until you get out of the magnetosphere, and that's where Earth's magnetic field controls the motion of the plasma. And this is all the way out to 30,000 kilometers. And then you hit the bow shock and the end of the magnetosphere at the magnetopause, Everything has to end, and you end up in the solar wind. And that's interplanetary space. Interstellar space and interplanetary space are two different things. We've never been to interstellar space. Uh, we're working on that. Voyager is on its way, and there's a constant argument over whether or not it's out there. So the sun constitutes the heliosphere. It constructs the heliosphere by its energy and, and blowing out. And into. that's the sphere around our planetary system that we're part of. That's right. And that's where Voyager's headed out of. Right, right. Out of the heliosphere. It's leaving, and it's not coming back. <laughs> I forget which star it's headed off to. So heliophysics is the study of plasmas and space plasmas and how they interact with bodies uh, and interact with important things such as planetary atmospheres. Basically, anywhere our star is in influence, it can influence the processes that occur there. <laughs> Our guest today is Thomas Immel. In the next segment, Thomas talks about heliophysics discoveries. This is KALX Berkeley. And what have been the big revelations in heliophysics? Well, the first discovery in heliophysics was the fact we had radiation belts. It was our first forays into space, carried instrumentation, and the first few explorers, which we're still part of that line, 
ICON mission is part of the Explorer line, but the first ones carried Geiger counters out of University of Iowa, where Jim Van Allen was in charge of that department and where they built those uh, experiments that discovered what we call the Van Allen belts now. So that was the first discovery, was that we had an environment around us in space that was hazardous, and we didn't know where that radiation came from. It flew a Geiger counter just to see what was there, and what you found was a lot more radiation than they thought. The solar cycle has influences throughout the heliosphere. A solar storm, for instance, can uh, launch a coronal mass ejection. These are, these are the words that are starting to show up in the common discussion of space weather. It's coronal mass ejections that come with a solar flare. We've timed these things. We see a coronal mass ejection, a very large one, cause a massive magnetic storm at Earth. And a good time later, it flies by Voyager and it hits the heliopause and radio waves are emitted from the heliopause the boundary of interstellar space, and Voyager picks them up. And those were some of the first studies of you know, Voyager trying to figure out how close it was to the heliopause. Where we are now in the past 10 years is that we understand uh, more now than ever that the forcing of plasma near Earth space is controlled to a much larger degree than we ever suspected or dared to think or dared to discuss, really. It's controlled by conditions in the lower atmosphere and that the atmospheric layers that we've talked about and talked about all the temperature variations that occur, there's processes that carry energy and momentum up beyond past all those pauses and layers straight from the surface to space. And it's actually the biggest discovery in heliophysics in the last decade is that the, this, the coupling of, of the terrestrial atmosphere to space is stronger than we thought. And what is your focus at the Space Sciences Lab? Well, it has been in the upper atmosphere and the ionosphere looking at how solar wind energy propagates through the system. Solar wind, it impacts or it affects the magnetosphere in a number of ways, it creates a shape, stretches it out. The magnetosphere is what processes all solar wind energy that produces the aurora. The aurora is energized by the solar wind. All that energy has to get through the magnetosphere and then down into our atmosphere in a number of ways. So we're interested in how that energy propagates through the system and how it's eventually deposited in our atmosphere. And then also how our atmosphere and the ionosphere, as you energize them and make them more conductive through ionization by aurora, how it feeds back through the system. So magnetospheric currents, there's a current system, electrical currents, that heats the atmosphere and how you turn that current on and off during a magnetic storm, uh, the timing and how processes work together is sort of as an engineering problem, is something I've been focused on for the past 10 years. That's changed over the years to, so I've been sliding to lower latitudes where the plasma density is actually highest. And it's highest for two reasons. One, because the sun is overhead more often at low latitudes and ionizing the atmosphere more actively or more strongly but also because Earth's magnetic field tends to trap the plasma at low latitudes. And when I say that the plasma is densest in the ionosphere between here and the sun, it's actually the low-latitude ionosphere, which has the dense plasma that interacts most strongly with the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and we know now that the energy and momentum that propagates up from the lower atmosphere, that a lot of that energy is coming up from low latitudes as well, because that's where a lot of the energy goes in in tropical rainforests and in the tropical weather systems that occur from day to day with interesting periodicities 
the reason you end up with large coupling from the low atmosphere to the upper atmosphere is because the atmosphere can be caused to move in a wave-like manner, and we call it a tide. Just like tides in the ocean, the atmosphere tends to have some 12-hour, 24-hour periodicity. Say you have a planet with a Brazilian rainforest on it, and that fires up at 2 in the afternoon every day. Day after day, you start moving the atmosphere in a periodic manner, and you end up growing these really, really large waves in the atmosphere that propagate up into space. And so it's the combination of the tropical forcing and the tropical ionosphere, which is dense and captured by the magnetic field, really creates this interesting environment. And we're a great laboratory for understanding atmosphere-space coupling. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest today is Thomas Immel. In the next segment, he talks about solar energy interacting with Earth's magnetosphere. The aurora. Mm -hmm. Can you just describe the aurora for us? The aurora is a feature of the planet at high latitudes in the north and the south, the aurora borealis up north and the aurora australis down south. What it is, it is light coming from the energization of our atmosphere by space plasma. The sun obviously has a lot of energy, and the solar atmosphere is constantly moving out, and it's carrying a lot of energy with it. So that energy arrives at Earth as solar plasma blowing past the planet. So those are the energies we're talking about. The magnetosphere is sort of a, it energizes all the solar wind particles to higher energies and dumps them into our atmosphere. And the aurora is what you see when you go out on your deck in Alaska and look up. It's the signature of that process occurring. And when the aurora is very active, it means that process is very active and there's a lot of energy coming into our atmosphere from the solar wind. Uh, what's great is a Nikon camera has great red response. So you can point your camera to the sky and you can put it to a two-second exposure and it will see things that you can't see with your eyes. Many people now have great auroral imagers in their mitts. They may not even know that they've got that capability. So the waves that are created around the equator in the low latitudes, mm -hmm. in thinking about waves on the ocean, they're moving in a specific direction. Are these waves also moving in a specific direction? Or are they sort of emanating everywhere? And... That's a good question. So the really large-scale waves in the atmosphere, the first thing is to realize that once you've got a wave moving in the atmosphere, there's nothing really to stop it. The waves aren't going to crash on the shore somewhere. They're going to go up and they're going to grow with altitude. The waves, storms drive, and I am talking about the large-scale, continental-scale waves, that the wavelength is as large as a continent, at least horizontally. Vertically, there's about 20, 30 kilometers. But 20, 30 kilometers is a quarter or a third of the way to space. So they're still large, even though 12, 30 kilometers doesn't sound that far. In any case, those waves grow with altitude, and by the time you get to the edge of space, a wave that might have had a half-degree centigrade or Celsius variability to it in amplitude, by the time it gets to the boundary of space and crosses it, it can have an amplitude of 20 or 30 degrees Kelvin or, or Celsius. It's the same thing. It's one way to measure the size of that wave. With that wave also comes a large wind component. The, the winds, the motion of the atmosphere is going to go with it. It's this sloshing. And the temperature comes from the compression and the expansion of the gas as the wave moves around the planet. Do they go in different directions? 
Yeah, we, we talk about them. We There's a number of technical terms for the waves. There's eastward and westward traveling waves, and some of them are larger than others. This atmosphere supports a couple waves eastward and a couple waves westward more than others. Some of these waves are, are excited more naturally than others just because of the source of the excitation. The source of the excitation are the continents. If you look at a map of the Earth where lightning occurs on Earth, for instance, it's always over the continents because the, the solar energy is really just being deposited right there at the surface, and the atmosphere starts to be put into motion, and the water vapor starts to condense as the atmosphere rises, and you get storms, uh, tropical rainforests in Africa, tropical rainforests in South America, and also a third really large region of tropical forcing in Southeast Asia. Those three places on the Earth firing off two in the afternoon in the Southeast Asia, then two in the afternoon in Africa, then South America, and you do that over again every day. It's like a drumhead problem, if you know what I mean. If you put a little sand on a drum and you start tapping it in one position, you can form a pattern. You would see where else you could tap it at the same time to reinforce that pattern. Now, the rainy seasons of those different places changes throughout the year. That's one of the reasons we know it's from the lower atmosphere, because we've observed conditions in space that change with the rainy seasons. And there's no reason to have rainy seasons in space, but we do. And so we look immediately to where we do have a rainy season, which is in the troposphere. And so the recent developments in numerical models supports the idea that there's a strong connection between the tropics and conditions in space. Have you been involved in a lot of past satellite projects at the Space Science Lab or a few of them? I've been involved in two recently, ICON, which I'm leading, and a small satellite we recently completed in FLU called Cinema. That was a student-led CubeSat, so a 10 by 10 by 30 centimeter satellite that we built at the lab, designed and built. Before that, I was analyzing data. I've been spending 10 years analyzing data from missions that we've supported or built. And so combining data from a number of different instruments that Space Sciences Lab has built or satellites that Space Sciences Lab has built has been something I've done at the lab. But this is my first time leading a mission. This is KALX Berkeley. The show is Spectrum. Our guest is Thomas Immel a physicist at UC Berkeley's Space Sciences Lab. How has the CubeSat changed the way satellite measurements are made? Well, in some respects, that remains to be seen. There's been a number of advances in the capabilities that CubeSats can carry in terms of pointing and uh, power, and the instruments have all had to shrink in size as well. But there's a number of capabilities that have grown over the years that allow us to do that. Cell phones have been a big driver in shrinking small processors and getting to low-power processors and communications gear as well. And what's been nice is working with the students here at Berkeley, actually. They've had a lot of experience in designing and programming processors for the purposes that we need to fly in space. So there's a number of universities working in this area now, and I think they're just getting better. Cinema has been a good experiment for us. We have four of them in the works. This year, there's two Korean cinemas going up. KHU, Kyunghee University was our partner. There's a lot of interest in supporting CubeSat launches at NASA and throughout different government agencies. And so, you know, we went on a national reconnaissance vehicle. 
but uh, it didn't cost us much. It was fantastic that we had that opportunity, and NASA has worked with NRO and other agencies to make this possible for universities to, to do this. There were a number of university CubeSats on that launch. So these CubeSats that NASA embraces, I guess that's the only way to get up? Is NASA says, yeah, this is worth putting up there? Or are there now independent ways to get to space? I think NASA's where we like to start, and that's who we've gone to before. NSF is really the organization that was the first to support a CubeSat program, per se. And National Science Foundation doesn't have a launch service but NASA does. So there was a close collaboration early on, and some key individuals at NASA Kennedy have taken a remarkable interest in fostering that program and developed basically what they call the Educational Launch. ELANA was, uh, is the acronym that we went on ELANA. ELANA supports a number of CubeSats getting into space. You propose to ELANA, NSF sends them $20,000, or that's what it was for us, and you get your slot and you get your orbit and you're on orbit for many years. So it's really a great opportunity. So right now, it's really good to work with NASA on this. On the cinema projects, there's quite a bit of student involvement in those, I understand. Can you talk about that? Right. So National Science Foundation supported Space Sciences Lab's cinema project, which is a CubeSat for ions, magnetic fields, C-I-N-Electrons. <laughs> it it's, it's a great acronym for a very tough thing. But it's a space weather mission. It's to measure the particle environment in space and the magnetic fields. So that was great. You know, we miss dearly Bob Lynn, who was the former head of Space Sciences Lab for more than a decade and the principal investigator on one of our explorers, HESI, and the principal investigator on cinema. He put that international team together between Kyunghee University, where he was an adjunct professor. We worked with Imperial College as well on that mission, and they provided the smallest magnetometer I've ever seen for a space instrument. It was a high-quality, high-precision magnetometer, way better than even your iPhone, if you can imagine. Also, we had a detector group at LBL and a group providing an electronic part, an ASIC, from France. So it was an unbelievable confluence of people and scientific interests that built cinema. The student aspect was there were students uh, from the start in mechanical engineering who really came up with an initial design of a CubeSat. And it was a couple of master's students, one of whom is still at Space Sciences Lab, David Glazer. And it was great working with the mechanical engineering department because it was that department which took the controls problem of how you spin a spacecraft based on inputs from space, the sun sensor we had, the magnetometer measurements that you're making. So that was a remarkable achievement, I thought, on the mechanical engineering side. And working with the electrical engineers, we had a number of CS EEC students as well and really had a good team there working on interfacing with the mechanical engineering students who were working on the attitude control, or working with the Imperial College students and researchers who were providing magnetometer. There was a number of difficult tasks that uh, we had some great students come through, and everyone got their chance to save cinema. It was a seat-of-your-pants operation. The thing flew, and it's functional. We were going to fly the next one with some updates. It's going to work better. So we need more students. The wonderful problem with students is that they graduate to go on to great careers in other places. And so we'd like to have those people back. They're not coming back, so we need to get a new crop of each students and mechanical engineers, and we'll probably be flyering at soda again. 
That concludes part one of our two-part interview with Thomas Immel. Part two will air on June 14th. In that interview, Dr. Immel discusses the ICON mission process start to finish. The ICON Explorer mission website is icon.ssl.berkeley.edu. Now a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski and Renee Rao present the calendar. This Tuesday, June 4th, the San Francisco Ask a Scientist Lecture Series will be hosting a talk by two science officers at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Yuda Grishammer and Kevin Whittlesey will speak about the potential of stem cell research to help in diseases such as diabetes, spinal cord injury, heart and eye disease, and neurological disorders. They will also address the recent restrictions on research and where it is heading today. This June 4th event will be held at the Soma Street Food Park in San Francisco, the city's first permanent food truck pod. It will begin at 7 p.m. Biological anthropologist Helen Fisher of Rutgers will speak with KQED's Michael Krasny about the science of love and attraction on Tuesday, June 4th at 7.30 p.m. at the Norse Theater in San Francisco. Fisher has written five books on the evolution and future of human sexuality, monogamy, adultery and divorce, gender differences in the brain, the chemistry of romantic love, and human personality types, and why we fall in love with one person rather than another. Tickets start at $20 and are available at calacademy.org. On Monday, June 10th, Brian Day, the lead Lunar Science Institute director at NASA, will give a talk about the latest lunar discoveries. As lunar robotics continue to advance, our understanding of the moon continues to change. While the lunar surface has been previously viewed as a static desert environment, new evidence points to a far more dynamic moonscape than expected. Dr. Day will discuss these new discoveries and elaborate on some of NASA's more recent lunar exploration missions. The event will be held on Monday, June 10th at 7.30 p.m. in the California Academy of Sciences Planetarium. To reserve tickets for the event, visit the Academy website at calacademy.org. The Computer History Museum at 1401 North Shoreline Boulevard in Mountain View is hosting Senior Vice President and Director of IBM Research John Kelly on June 11th at 7 p.m. Museum CEO John Huller will moderate a conversation with Kelly on topics ranging from his background and the path that led him to IBM, the history of research there, IBM's Watson and Cognitive Computing, to the newest IBM lab in Nairobi, Kenya. IBM says that Africa is destined to become an important growth market for the company. Admission is free. Register at computerhistory.org. Spectrum is to present news stories we find interesting. Rick Karneski and Renee Rao present the news. Bioengineers at UC Berkeley have created a new hydrogel that can be manipulated by exposure to light alone. The team, inspired by plants' ability to grow towards light sources, created their gel by combining synthetic elastic proteins with one-cell-thick sheets of graphite known as graphene. 
Graphene generates heat when exposed to light, which can cause synthetic proteins to release water. The two materials were combined to form a hydrogel, with one side that is more porous than the other. This allows the material to mimic the way plant cells shrink and expand unevenly in response to light. This hydrogel also shrinks unevenly, albeit more precisely, allowing to bend and move solely in response to light. Creators speculate that the shape-changing gel could have applications in drug delivery and tissue engineering. Mathematician Yitang Zhang of the University of New Hampshire in Durham published an important number theory proof in this week's issue of Annals of Mathematics. Zhang proved a weak form of the twin prime conjecture and is the first to establish the existence of a finite bound for prime gaps. Prime numbers are natural numbers greater than one that have no positive divisors other than one and themselves. Interestingly, many come in pairs that have a difference of two. For example, 3 and 5, 17 and 19, or 101 and 103. Zhang showed that for some integer n, that is at most 70 million, there are infinitely many pairs of primes that differ by n. Spectrum is archived on iTunes University. Our special link is tinyurl.com slash K-A-L-X Spectrum. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.